What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Science of Nutrition podcast. I am your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez. Welcome to episode number two of the podcast. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the different types of nutrition research, the different types of data and evidence that we can use to help us make decisions about what we choose to eat, how we choose to live our lives, if we want to maximize long-term health. If you didn't tune into the first episode, in that episode we discussed why nutrition is a science and not an opinion and why it's important to get your information from people who are presenting you with the science so that you can make the best decisions for your health. So if you haven't listened to that one, I recommend going and listening to that one because I talk more about what this podcast is going to be about and then also discuss some upcoming topics. Today is something that is not going to be as exciting as some of the other things that we discuss, but it's incredibly important to understand this because when you get presented with information through other sources, this is going to help you identify whether or not this is something that you should really pay attention to. Because when it comes to nutrition, there's a lot of sources of evidence. There's a lot of ways to construct very convincing arguments for things that may not be entirely true. And you're going to be exposed to some of these things in everyday life. If you're browsing on social media, if you're having conversations with individuals, you're going to be exposed to different sources of information. And you want to make sure that you understand how to place those sources of information in the proper hierarchy of things of importance, of things that you want to pay attention to. So let's get right into it. And what I want to do is basically discuss the different levels of evidence that we use to make decisions about health behaviors. The first level of evidence, the one that, that we often want to place the lowest priority on is what is called anecdote. And this is people's stories. And what I don't want to do is make it sound like we're just discounting everybody's stories. Stories are interesting. Stories can provide us information about various things, but stories are a very weak form of evidence because people often don't remember all of the details of the changes that they made and their story tends to be a little bit skewed towards whatever they want to bias it towards. So for example, if someone says, I cut out seed oils and lost 30 pounds, great. Does that mean that the seed oils contributed to weight loss? What probably happened was you avoided seed oil containing foods, which took away a lot of your previous food choices, which caused you to avoid a lot of those choices and eat less as a result. And that led to an improvement in your overall energy intake, which led to the weight loss. Or you cut those out as a part of an overall lifestyle change and when you finally made the effort to cut those out and be consistent with it you were also exercising you were also eating more protein and doing other things and sometimes we tend to focus on that one change and attribute benefits to that one thing that we changed without really describing all of the other details that are also important so anecdote is something that we want to, yeah, listen to them. Don't discount people when they're telling you their story. It's interesting. It's fun to hear about different things that people have done and things that they've overcome, and it's inspiring. But we don't want to use that 
as a guide for making decisions for our own health. So if someone said, I cut out X, that doesn't mean that you need to cut out X. Number one, I mentioned their story may not be entirely accurate. Number two, they are not you. And they have different genetics, different health status, different needs. And if you try to construct your dietary choices and lifestyle choices after what they're doing, you are likely to end up with quite different responses. So this is another really important limitation to anecdote is this person could be just the one person who happened to benefit from that change and most people would experience an opposite effect. And unfortunately, anecdote is honestly one of the most commonly used forms of evidence for promoting various dietary patterns. There's a diet called the autoimmune paleo protocol that is largely built off of anecdote and the author or the creator of this program tried to piece in some science afterwards. Same thing with the carnivore diet. If you listen to the individual who made that diet popular, he will describe his story and how he benefited from these changes. And then he developed health issues from being on a carnivore diet and changed his diet again. And now he promotes a different diet and it's all based on what worked for me. And none of it is based on science. These individuals often try to pull together pieces of evidence to seem like it supports the nutritional choices that they're promoting. But the reality is, hey, it's what worked for me. And it's different than what everyone else is doing. So I'm now going to promote it as this panacea for everyone. And that is not a good place where you want to be. You don't want someone to be promoting a certain diet based on because it worked for me, and now it's going to work for everyone else, because oftentimes there are risks, side effects that may occur in other individuals, or that may occur over time, as we saw with the individual who follows and promotes a carnivore diet, or who used to follow and promote a carnivore diet, who has now changed. These health problems develop for him, because he was going based on his own anecdote, and that has led to many other people developing health issues from following the advice in the information that he's published over time, demonizing plant foods and things like that. So that is a problem, and we want to make sure we avoid it. If we hear someone telling stories too often and telling their own story and telling other people's stories without providing support from higher quality forms of evidence, that's a red flag. So anecdote is at the bottom. Then we have what are called case studies or case series reports, and these are published in scientific journals. So instead of stories, what we want to see is information and data that's been published in a scientific journal. Why is that important? Because scientific journals are peer-reviewed. That means that you submit this information to a group of experts in the topic. They read your paper. They provide critiques. They make sure the data is solid and then they allow you to publish the paper if you make it through this process. This provides a level of checks and balances for the information being presented. If I'm telling you a story, I can make up any story that I want. I can say whatever I feel like saying, and there's no way to validate it and make sure that it's actually true. When we look at peer-reviewed science, there is checks and balances instituted to help to ensure that that information is accurate. So that is why peer-reviewed science is important. That is why we want to use peer-reviewed science to make decisions 
And when we look at peer-reviewed science, the lowest form of peer-reviewed science when it comes to nutrition is case series case reports. So there will be papers where they'll publish a study based on one individual's response to a dietary pattern. These are great. These are great ways of collecting anecdotes in a way that is verifiable. So this is a little bit better level of anecdote because we know that the actual story is true, but it also presents the same limitations as an individual story where we don't necessarily know if this translates to a larger population or if this person's response was very individualized. Another low form of scientific evidence is cell culture studies. These are studies that are done in a lab where we take, let's say, for example, liver cells or liver cancer cells. We mix them with a particular agent in a test tube and we see what the response is. These are very helpful for helping to glean some understanding of the potential benefits and potential harms of various compounds in foods that we eat. These are not something that we want to completely discount, but these are, these are things that we don't want to rely on to use to make decisions about our health. This is another thing that you'll see promoted quite often by individuals on social media without really understanding that these types of studies don't really hold much weight. So let's say, for example, you take a broccoli compound, you mix it with cancer cells in a lab, and it stops the growth of these cells or significantly slows the growth of these cells. Oftentimes, you'll see headlines with conclusions like broccoli helps stop the growth of cancer, and this isn't entirely true. While some of the compounds in broccoli might have that impact if they come into direct contact with these cancer cells at this concentration, when we eat a food, there's a lot that happens between our digestion and between those broccoli compounds actually ever getting to that cancer cell and especially exposing that cancer cell to the concentrations that are able to be achieved through these cell culture studies. So these studies are helpful for understanding mechanisms, but they are not helpful for making decisions about what we should do with our health. Just because broccoli shows some positive benefits in a cell culture study when some of the specific nutrients from that food were isolated, there could be other factors that are leading to a negative impact of that food when we consume it as a part of the entire food matrix and when we digest and absorb and assimilate it, maybe it's actually having negative effects in various ways. So this is why we don't want to rely on cell culture studies. They can be extremely misleading. They can be very misleading and make you feel like something has major benefits or major harm because of the way that these studies are conducted and how far away from actual human exposure they really are. So pay attention to that. If you see cell culture studies being promoted, understand that you shouldn't be making decisions based on this. And if someone is promoting these studies, they're probably cherry picking data and not providing you with the highest quality of evidence in this specific topic. Sometimes that's all that's available, but if that's all that's available, you probably don't want to be making decisions based on that limited amount of evidence. So a little bit higher on the chain of research quality is going to be animal studies. In animal studies, 
also have limitations because animals are not humans, because animals are placed into very controlled environments, because we can manipulate dietary patterns in animals in a way that really isn't achievable oftentimes in humans because behavior is also an important factor in nutritional choices. But these studies can further give us information about what might possibly happen in humans should we expose humans to these compounds. So animal studies are often used for toxicity studies because we're not going to expose humans to toxic levels of certain ingredients to determine what that level is that causes harm. So we use animal studies and we extrapolate and we are very, very um, conservative in translating animal studies to human studies when we're doing safety safety analysis. So for example, uh, when scientists are trying to determine the safety of a certain pesticide, this will be done in animal studies and scientists will then set an upper limit of consumption in humans that is the equivalent to thousands of times less than what was shown to potentially cause harm in animals. This is one way that animal studies are used where we can't really use human data. But in most cases, let's say for example, we're trying to look at the effect of CBD oil and we feed it to animals and look at outcomes, probably not the best way to help us determine whether humans should be consuming this for a therapeutic benefit. We want to see human trials to make that decision about consuming this particular product because we can run human trials. So this is an area where, where you'll see like turmeric studies and various supplements and um, sometimes they're conducted in animals and sometimes we show certain outcomes in animals and we hope that that's going to translate to humans but we actually have to study humans in order to understand how that impacts humans because our metabolism is different. We have different receptors for CB, CBD, for example, and the way that we respond to these various agents can vary dramatically between us and different types of animals. That shouldn't be too surprising. So we want to pay attention to when animal studies are being presented as a way to make decisions about our health because that's likely going to be pretty speculative and not a strong form of data to help us make decisions about health behaviors. The next level of research are the types of research that we want to be focusing on and paying attention to and using to help us make decisions about our health. And the two types of studies are epidemiological studies and randomized controlled trials. And there's pros and cons to each of these. There's a lot of people who demonize epidemiological studies without good reason and without a good understanding of why they're important and why we use them to make decisions. So let's give a quick breakdown of what these are. So epidemiological studies are large studies where we look at tens of thousands of people, and ideally we follow them over time, and we administer questionnaires to get an idea of their nutrition, physical activity habits, their social economic status, and other factors that are important to health. And then we track them for 10, 20, 30 years. And there's several of these studies going on throughout the world that are constantly uh, being reported on. And what we're looking at is we're trying to tease out which dietary habits, which lifestyle habits are associated with better health outcomes. The challenge with these studies and why they're often highly criticized is because it's very difficult to get a detailed description of someone's dietary patterns 
by doing a survey. People underreport, people overreport, usually underreporting on unhealthy food, overreporting on healthy food, and these things can come with a lot of error. In addition to that, there's what's called confounding, where we know that individuals who tend to exercise more also tend to eat more fruits and vegetables. So if we find that people who eat more fruits and vegetables have a longer lifespan, how can we say that it's not because of the exercise? We can put in what are called covariates, and any of these studies are putting in multiple covariates, and they're adjusting for these covariates to help isolate the outcome of interest. So for example, if we want to know the effect of eating more saturated fat on heart disease, we look at saturated fat consumption over a 20, 30 year period, and how many people developed heart disease as a result of consuming higher levels of saturated fat. And we plug in these covariates because the individuals who are eating more saturated fat probably exercise less, probably had, you know, lower socioeconomic status, whatever the case may be. And so there's an adjustment made for each of these factors and how they differ from the lower saturated fat consuming group. And this is how we can statistically do our best to isolate this specific variable. There is error involved with this, but this is the only way to track long-term dietary patterns and health outcomes. And the reason why is because the other type of evidence is a randomized controlled trial. This is the type of study, this, is, uh, this would be the ideal type of study if it was feasible and doable on a grander scale. But this is a study where we take two groups of people or we take a big group of people, we randomize them to two different dietary patterns. One group is going to eat high saturated fat, one group is going to eat low saturated fat, and we're going to follow them up for one year, two years, three years, five years, ten years. The issue with that is those trials are incredibly expensive. To follow up with people, to have them stick to the diet, it's difficult. Most people are going to revert back to their baseline diet unless we provide lots of dietary counseling, unless we are consistently encouraging them to continue to maintain the diet that they were assigned to, unless we're providing you know, meals in some cases. There's no good way to do this over the long term without it being incredibly expensive to the point that it's cost prohibitive. Like We cannot run a randomized controlled trial that lasts 30 years and look at heart disease outcomes. This is one of the big critiques of nutrition science. Individuals will come and make stuff up and provide their opinion on nutrition and say, well, science can't be trusted because there's limitations to all forms of evidence. And it's true. There are limitations to all forms of evidence. Randomized control trials cannot be done over the long period of time. It's hard enough to get people to change their diet for a year or for two years. And to try to do that over 20 years, it's just not going to happen. So what we have to do is we have to use evidence from compilations of large epidemiological trials, and that's what we do, where we pull together evidence from a million people that were followed over 25 years, and we apply these statistical adjustments. And what we find is that oftentimes these epidemiological studies are showing us patterns that consistently show up in the literature in these studies. And then we can test, let's say, for example, high saturated fat is associated with heart disease. And so what we can do in randomized controlled trials is we can test what happens when we feed people high saturated fat. What happens to the risk factors for heart disease, the established risk factors for heart disease? Does LDL cholesterol go up? Does ApoB go up? Does CRP go up? Does HDL go down? 
does insulin sensitivity worsen? So we can look at these risk factors that are established that we know when these risk factors are out of range that increases someone's risk for these chronic diseases. And we combine the evidence from randomized controlled trials with epidemiological data and with animal data, if that's relevant, and we make decisions based on that body of literature. That is why nutrition science is challenging in many cases, is because we're trying to compile these different types of data that may have some slight disagreement between studies, between types of studies, and make sense of it all. And this is why it's very easy to promote misinformation and make it seem like it's quote-unquote evidence-based because you can pull certain types of studies, you can pull an animal study and say, hey, look, you shouldn't eat broccoli because in this animal study, they were fed this broccoli extract and it led to some liver damage. I'm completely making that up, but these are some of the things that you see on social media. And we want to make sure that we're making decisions based on a body of evidence as opposed to individual studies. This is why you won't often see me talk about individual studies on my social media or on here. While it's interesting and while it can be fun to discuss individual studies and people enjoy hearing about them, individual studies taken out of context of the body of literature in a topic aren't very helpful and can be extremely misleading because one study could be published that is in complete disagreement with the rest of the body of literature. And if you don't see the entire picture and you're just presented with one piece of it, you can develop thoughts and beliefs around nutrition and make choices around nutrition that really aren't based on any solid evidence. So that is the rundown of different types of evidence. At the bottom, we have anecdote and people stories. A little bit above that, or probably right on the same plane, we have cell studies and cell culture studies. And then we have animal studies. And then we have human trials. And we have epidemiological trials. We have randomized control trials. And we really want to see a mix of epidemiology, randomized control trials. We want to see where they overlap, are in agreement with one another, are supported by mechanisms that have been uncovered and randomized, are supported by mechanisms that have been identified in animal and cell culture studies. And when all that comes together, that's when we can make quality evidence-based recommendations about nutrition. We don't base it on one study. We don't base it on what worked for me. We base it on a totality of information. And this is only a piece of the puzzle because then we have to take that and say, okay, this is what the data shows. But now, how do I feel when I start to make these changes? Because another incredibly important piece of information is what makes you feel good. How do you want to eat? This is something that we can't ignore. You know, when we're talking about science, we're talking about science, but the application of it is, okay, here's this information. This food is probably good for me. This food is probably good for me. This dietary pattern is probably a good one. Now what works for me? What works with my lifestyle, my preferences, my budget, how I'm responding to various dietary patterns, and this is how we individualize it for ourselves because evidence is to be used as a guidepost to say, hey, this is probably good, this is probably not, but at the end of the day, you have to do what works for you. All right, so I hope this episode was informative and helpful and will set you up to understand the different types of studies that I'm going to discuss in future episodes. 
as we go over various topics. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about artificial sweeteners, and we'll talk a little bit about each of these types of research and each of these types of evidence and discuss what you need to know in order to make decisions about whether or not to include artificial sweeteners or what types and what amounts in the next episode. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, highly recommend you share it and help to get the word out. That will be greatly appreciated. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we will talk soon.